Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. Men and women can't be friends because no man can be friends with a woman that he finds attractive. He always wants to have sex with her. So you're saying that a man can be friends with a woman he finds unattractive? No, you pretty much want to nail him, too. Grape? No, I don't like to eat between meals. I'll roll down the window. A faceless guy rips off your clothes, and that's the sex fantasy you've been having since you were 12. Exactly the same. Well, sometimes I vary it a little. Which part? What I'm wearing. You tell her about other women. Yeah. Like the other night. I made love to this woman, and it was so incredible. I took her to a place that wasn't human. She actually meowed. You made a woman meow? Are you comfortable? Sure. What happened? What's the matter? Harry came over last night. I went night. over to Sally's last night. Because I was upset that Joe was getting married. And one thing led to another. And before I knew it, we were kissing. To make and a then long story short, we, we did it. They did it. The challenge. <laughs> I'm difficult. I'm too structured. I'm completely closed off. But in a good way. And I'm gonna be 40. <laughs> when? <laughs> Someday. In eight years. It's not the same for men. Charlie Chaplin had babies when he was 73. Yeah, but he was too old to pick them up. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover arguably one of the greatest romantic comedies ever made, and that's When Harry Met Sally from 1989. Now, the studio was Columbia Pictures. The release date was July 21st, 1989. The running time is 96 minutes. The rating is R. The budget was $16 million, and the box office made $92 million, which was 11th of the top-grossing films in 1989. Rotten Tomatoes gave it 90% fresh from 68 reviews. The critics' consensus was... Rob Reiner's touching, funny film set a new standard for romantic comedies, and he was ably abetted by the sharp interplay between Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan. Roger Ebert gave it 3 out of 4 stars, and his review is, When Harry Met Sally is a love story with a form as old as the movies and dialogue as new as this month's issue of Vanity Fair. It's about two people who could be characters in a Woody Allen movie, if they weren't so sunny, and about how it takes them 12 years to fall in love. We're with them, or maybe a little ahead of them, every step of the way. Harry meets Sally for the first time at the University of Chicago in the spring of 1977, when they team up to share a driving trip from ne- to New York. Both plan to start their careers in the city, she's a journalist and he's a political consultant. Presumably, they are both successful because they live in those apartments that only the people in the movies can afford, but the professional lives are entirely off-screen. We see them only at those intervals when they see each other. They meet, for example, several years later at LaGuardia Airport. 
She's with a new boyfriend. They meet after that when they're both in relationships, and after that when her boyfriend has left and his wife wants a divorce. They keep on meeting until they realize that they like one another and they become friends. Even though on their very first cross-country trip, Harry warned Sally that true friendship is impossible between a man and a woman because the issue of sex always gets in the way. The movie apparently believes that, and it also suggests that the best way to get rid of sex as an issue is to get married, since married people seem too tired for sex. That and other theories about sex and relationship are tested as if Harry and Sally were proving grounds for Cosmopolitan, until finally, tired of fighting, they admit that they do love one another after all. The movie was written by Nora Ephron and could be a prequel to her novel and screenplay Heartburn with starred Jack Nicholson and Meryl Streep in the story of a marriage and divorce. But this marriage seems headed for happier times, maybe because of most of the big fights are out of the way before the love is even declared. Harry is played by Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan as Sally, and they make a good movie couple because both actors are able to suggest genuine warmth and tenderness. This isn't a romance of passion, although passion is present, but one that finally becomes possible because the two people have grown up together, have matured until they can finally see clearly what they really want in a partner. Efron's dialogue represents the way that people would like to be able to talk. It's witty and epigrammatic, and there are lots of lines to quote when you're telling friends about the movie. The dialogue would defeat many actors, but Crystal and Ryan help it work. Their characters seem smart and quick enough to almost be this witty. It is only occasionally that the humor is paid for the, at the expense of credibility. As in a hilarious but unconvincing scene where Sally sits in a crowded restaurant and demonstrates how to fake an orgasm. I laughed, but somehow I didn't think Sally or any woman would really do that. When Harry Met Sally was directed by Rob Reiner, the one-time meathead of All in the Family, whose credits now qualify him as one of Hollywood's very best directors of comedy. Reiner's films include The Sure Thing, Stand By Me, This Is Spinal Tap, and The Princess Bride. Each film is completely different from the others, and each one is successful on its own terms. This film is probably the most conventional in terms of structure and the way it fulfills our expectations, but what makes it special, apart from the Efron screenplay, is the chemistry between Crystal and Ryan. She is an open-faced, bright-eyed blonde, he's gentle and a skinny man with a lot of smart one-liners. What they both have, to repeat, is warmth. Crystal demonstrated that quality in his previous film, The Underrated Memories of Me, and it's here one again this time in the scenes where he visibly softens when he sees that he has hurt her. He is one of the rare actors who can make an apology on, on the screen and convince us that he means it. Meg Ryan from Inner Space, the Presidio, and DOA has a difficult assignment. She spends most of the movie convincing Harry and herself that there's nothing between them, and she has to let us see that there is something after all. Harry and Sally are aided and sometimes hindered in their romance by the efforts of their best friends, played by Carrie Fisher and Bruno Kirby, who meet on a blind date arranged by Harry and Sally to provide a parcel partner for Harry and Sally. <laughs> They're the kind of people who don't make it hard for themselves, who realize that they like each other and accept that fact and act on it. Harry and Sally are tough customers. They fight ha happiness every step of the way until it finally wears them down. And that is the end of the review. There's a reason why I always try to use Roger Ebert's reviews if they're available because he's almost always spot on. This is a timeless movie that never gets old and actually gets better with repeat viewings because you can really appreciate the terrific subtleties of Nora Ephron's script and the back and forth between Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan. As a kid, this movie didn't resonate with me because honestly, it's not meant for kids. 
It's deliberate in its pacing and full of dialogue. And this isn't for the average ADD movie fan of today. The movie is for those that simply enjoy a well-crafted story or enjoy novels. The back and forth between men and women were equal, which makes it refreshing and timeless. And when you think about it, the cast really only involves four people, and two of them are the main characters. All right, let's get right into the cast. So we first have Billy Crystal, who plays Harry Burns. And crazy enough, this was the film that truly made Crystal a superstar. He was well-known in comedy circles for his stand-up ability, along with his role in the TV series Soap. And he had bit roles in This Is Spinal Tap and The Princess Bride, which were both Rob Reiner films. He was also great with Gregory Hines in the underrated buddy cop dramedy Running Scared. But it was his role as Harry that really allowed his movie cachet to transition from a bit player to a leading man. Meg Ryan plays Sally Albright, and interestingly enough, Ryan was in the same boat as Crystal, which is crazy to think about it now, because she went on to become one of the most famous actresses of her generation. At the time, she was best known for her small role as Goose's wife in Top Gun. She was also in comedies like Armed and Dangerous with John Candy, and Interspace with Dennis Quaid and Martin Short. She did appear in thrillers like the remake of DOA and The Presidio. Meg Ryan actually auditioned for Throw Mama from the Train, but Danny DeVito did not want her. The chemistry between her and Crystal was instant, and after when Harry met Sally, she never looked back. Meg Ryan had it all. She was adorable she was, and beautiful and charming, and, and there was a reason why she was Hollywood's sweetheart. And as others have said before, men wanted to date her, and women wanted to be her best friend, which is a great combination. Carrie Fisher plays Marie, and at this point, Fisher was the most well-known actor in this film. It might seem crazy to think about it due to her enormous fame from playing Princess Leia in the Star Wars trilogy, but she was never really a leading lady. She was almost always cast as a character actress, much like Joan Cusack. However, Fisher always stole the show when she appeared in films, everything from The Blues Brothers and Hannah and Her Sisters and The Burbs and, and many others. She's absolutely perfect in the role as Marie in When Harry Met Sally. Bruno Kirby plays Jess, and like Fisher, Kirby was always a terrific as a, as a character actor and had been acting in film and TV since the early 1970s. He was most notably cast as young Clemenza in The Godfather Part Two, a great bit role as a limo driver in This Is Spinal Tap, and equally terrific in Good Morning Vietnam with Robin Williams. The director is Rob Reiner, and Reiner, Reiner had a terrific family lineage because his father, of course, was Carl Reiner, who was a comic legend. And Rob Reiner had the, his acting break as the character Mike, or Meathead, on the hugely popular TV series All in the Family. Once Reiner went full-time into directing in the 80s, he was incredibly successful, much like Quinn Eastwood or Ron Howard, starting with the amazing comedy This is Spinal Tap. Then Reiner, just as Ebert said, went on a terrific streak of films, you know, The Sure Thing with John Cusack and Stand By Me, and then, of course, The Princess Bride. The screenwriter is Nora Ephron, and prior to her work in Hollywood, Ephron was a journalist for the New York Post and then later for the magazine Esquire. She was married to fellow journalist Carl Bernstein from 1976 to 1980 and, and rewrote a script to All the President's Men based on the famous Woodward and Bernstein story about the Watergate scandal and Richard Nixon. Though her script wasn't used, her work was noted and got her the foot in the door to be a screenwriter. Her first film as a screenwriter was Silkwood with Meryl Streep and Cher, and later her novel Heartburn was adapted into a film with Streep and Jack Nicholson, which was largely based on her relationship with Bernstein. However, like most associated with When Harry Met Sally, this became the career-changing film for Nora Ephron. 
All right, let's just get into some background of this film because there is a great stories about how this film was actually made and put together. So Billy Crystal and Rob Reiner were friends before this movie, uh, but they weren't sure if, if it would translate to working together, even though they were they were friends. And the origin they originally met on the set of All in the Family, where Crystal was cast as Meathead's best friend, and then Bruno Kirby. He was. They all played on the same softball team together, and Kirby was also in Spinal Tap as a limo driver, so they all kind of had a connection. The actual Harry and Sally are much like Crystal and Reiner in many ways, and they mention the scene where the two are watching TV together and talking on the phone, and Reiner was going through a divorce, and they would talk on the phone and watch TV together. So when you see this in the film, when uh, Meg Ryan and Billy Crystal are watching Casablanca, that really stemmed from Billy Crystal and Rob Reiner talking on the phone watching a movie. So the rhythm of the dialogue and hitting the punchline was the genius of Reiner. It's like listening to music, and, and having Nora Ephron on set was a huge help to the cast as she gave the female perspective to Sally. It was almost like having three directors because Reiner wanted to work with Evron, and Efron loved the idea of the quote-unquote impossible relationship, since Harry and Sally seemed to like nothing about each other, but they actually did. All of this kind of started around 1984 and 1985 with Efron and Reiner, and the original idea from Reiner was about two people who meet each other after a breakup of both of their first major relationships, and they become friends who never have sex because it will ruin their relationship. Then they actually do have sex, and of course, it ruins their friendship. This wasn't the, the first idea, but the first idea that Efron knew that she could write a, a full story around. So Efron tells a story that she was horrified by the relationship stories that Reiner was telling her, and that's what made the script work, because she could then throw in her perspective. Efron believed that she could be friends with men without being romantic. However, Reiner believed it was just just believed it was impossible. And this is what translated to the film. There's always that what if factor, even if it's truly just friends. So Nora Efron has a great line where she's like, women are constantly trying to understand men. Men know they can't understand women. They just give up, especially when they get married. <laughs> then there w there was contests with the crew while this was going on to come up with a title. Some of the... the um, Movie title suggestions were Harry, This is Sally. That was one of them. When Boy Meets Girl, Just Friends, Playing Melancholy Baby, Blue Moon, Words of Love, It Had to Be You, and How They Met. But Reiner finally came up with a real title, but added the ellipsis. Of course, that's the three dots at the end of the title. This is really the beauty of a great script that doesn't need action, you know, like explosions and CGI and things like that. This is, to me, film at its finest. And if you notice, Harry and Sally almost never talk about their career. It's always about their relationships. And it's briefly mentioned that Sally is a journalist and, and Harry is a political consultant, but it's refreshing that the plot never relies on their jobs. Crystal was cast first because, and he just knew when Ryan came to read that she was going to be Sally. It's a movie that is timeless because falling in love, of course, is timeless, and this movie should resonate with everyone, young and old. But many films try the romantic comedy genre, but to really have a movie that feels real and, and resonates, it's incredibly difficult. And to me, this movie just hits it out of the park. Originally, Reiner wasn't going to have Harry and Sally get together in the original scripts. He wanted them to meet years later, but then walk off into different directions. However, Reiner met his wife during the filming of this, and so his outlook changed. And so Harry is kind of, he's a character that's always half empty. Sally's always half full, but you put them together and it just kind of works. Harry's always pressing buttons. He's very self-centered. He's almost too honest. 
But that ends up being his charm because he always has humor no matter what he does. And it's a very Jewish sense of humor. And, and Crystal will be the first one to say that. Lots of pain, but that's the long line of Jewish comedians. Nora Ephron never wanted a sequel to this film, which is perfect. Because people can believe what they want, you know, where Harry and Sally actually end up. And I think that's the best way to do it. And today, if, if there's any sort of success, the immediate follow-up is, hey, we got to follow this up because it's an instant moneymaker. But what makes a movie... Stand the test of time is sometimes just leaving it as is. I like the internal struggle of Harry and Sally being together. You know, Reiner has mentioned this. He suffers from depression, but he could always channel it into humor, which Crystal actually used well in his character as what could always go wrong. But there's still something charming about him. Even when he's being a shit, you still like him. And, and that's where Sally would come into each situation and be level-headed and rational, much like Nora Ephron. So Reiner would actually laugh on set during takes because he truly enjoyed making this film. Reiner working out of TV embraced change and improv, and this allowed Crystal and Bruno Kirby to come up with things that would have never happened if it was just a strict script. And Carrie Fisher said she really didn't have to act, that Marie was really her personality. And this is why when you cast great actors or actors that fit the role, you really don't have to do much with them. In addition, the music is perfect using American standards, and that's what makes this movie kind of timeless as well. It's a very New York film, and the city is an important character in the film, whether it be Central Park, Washington Square, uh, the museum, which is the Temple of Dender, Giant Stadium, and Katz's Deli. It's very Woody Allen in many ways, but it's the side jokes of Billy Crystal, which is like Woody too. It was small in a very big city. You know, what I always liked is people were just walking down the street talking. And it just doesn't happen in other cities, you know, outside of New York. Like Los Angeles, this wouldn't work. People are kind of always just doing their own thing. But, you know, when you, you're walking everywhere in New York, and there's different types of look in this film regarding New York, and there's some great lofts, which, as Ebert said, only the people in Hollywood can afford. All right, let's just get into the film itself. And I, I adore the opening scene and what foreshadows the interludes involving older couples telling their stories about how they met each other. So the first scene based on the older couple is based on a real story from Rob Reiner's friend, uh, his father named Saul Horn. And the stories from older couples are what adds even more heart to what is already one of the most beloved romantic comedies in history. And as a viewer, you're almost looking forward to each couple interlude. And so the, the older couples are real stories, but they're reenacted by actors because the stories would go on too long when they auditioned non-actors because everyone loves to tell and talk about how they first met and fell in love. And so it just didn't translate to film, but they could make it concise when it was actors and they did a great job. I was sitting with my friend Arthur Kornblum in a restaurant. It was a horn and dotted cafeteria. And this beautiful girl walked in, and I turned to Arthur, and I said, Arthur, you see that girl? I'm going to marry her. And two weeks later, we were married. And it's over 50 years later, and we are still married. I love the different hairstyles for both Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan in this, because Meg starts the movie with kind of a flowing Farrah Fawcett-style hair from the late 70s, and actually, the time period is supposed to start in 1977. Nora Ephron wanted Sally's hair to get younger as she got older, while Billy Crystal had, has a messy, almost toupee look. <laughs> it's fascinating to think how two strangers would drive from Chicago to New York with each other. Nowadays, it almost seems too dangerous, but back then, it seemed harmless and almost adventurous. 
The brilliance of this film is the dialogue and the back and forth between characters. And sadly, a movie like movie with this much dialogue is just isn't made anymore. It's a shame, or it's an independent film. The first meeting of Crystal and Ryan kind of sets the tone, and it never lets up. It's like him spitting the grape seeds and later <laughs> at and later out the window. And it was Billy's idea to spit the grapes out the window. It kind of gave him an edge, and this was based on Billy's grandfather teaching him how to drive, and he did the same thing, and he spit against the window by accident. (laughs) I have it all figured out. It's an 18-hour trip, which breaks down into six shifts of three hours each, or alternatively, we could break it down by mileage. There's a a map on the uh, visor that I've marked to show the locations where we can change shifts. Grape? No, I don't like to eat between meals. I'll roll down the window. Why don't you tell me the story of your life? The story of my life? We've got 18 hours to kill before we hit New York. The story of my life isn't even going to get us out of Chicago. I mean, nothing's happened to me yet. That's why I'm going to New York. So something happened to you? Yes. Like what? Like I'm going to journalism school to become a reporter. So you can write about things that happen to other people. That's one way to look at it. Suppose nothing happens to you. Suppose you lived there your whole life and nothing happens. You never meet anybody. You never become anything. And finally you die one of those New York deaths that nobody notices for two weeks until the smell drifts into the hallway. Amanda mentioned you had a dark side. That's what drew to me. Your dark side? Sure. Why don't you have a dark side? No, you're probably one of those cheerful people who dots their eyes with little hearts. I have just as much of a dark side as the next person. Oh, really? When I buy a new book, I always read the last page first. That way, in case I die before I finish, I know how it ends. That, my friend, is a dark side. That doesn't mean you're deep or anything. I mean, yes, basically, I'm a happy person. So am I. And I don't see that there's anything wrong with that. Of course not. You're too busy being happy. You ever think about death? Yes. Sure you do. A fleeting thought that drifts in and out of the transom of your mind. I spend hours. I spend days. And you think this makes you a better person? When the shit comes down, I'm going to be prepared, and you're not. That's all I'm saying. In the meantime, you're going to ruin your whole life waiting for it. Also, they would be talking about, you know, debating about the plot of Casablanca, which leads to Crystal saying that she's never she's never had great sex. <laughs> and then, of course, she commits the ultimate crowded room faux pas when you raise your voice while saying something, only to have the entire room go silent at that very moment. And then, of course, it leads to Meg Ryan's super-specific ordering habits. Now, this was all Nora Ephron in real life. She would actually order this way. She would never order straight off the menu and not even realize it. And after the movie came out, Ephron tells a story of when she was on an airplane and she ordered like that, like, like she always does, to the flight attendant. And the attendant asked Ephron if she'd ever seen When Harry Met Sally. <laughs> what can I get you? I'll have a number three. I'd like the chef salad, please, with the oil and vinegar on the side and the apple pie a la mode. Chef and apple a la mode. But I'd like the pie heated, and I don't want the ice cream on top. I want it on the side, and I'd like strawberry instead of vanilla if you have it. If not, then no ice cream, just whipped cream, but only if it's real. If it's out of a can, then nothing. Not even the pie? No, just the pie, but then not heated. Uh Uh-huh. Nothing. 
Okay, and then they get back in the car after a restaurant. This, of course, leads to the best debate ever. You know, men and women can't be friends because the sex part always gets in the way. But of course, it's always more than that. It's the great differences between men and women and trying to figure out where each fits. But this was the entire premise of the film because Reiner believed there's no way because men men just can't be friends with a woman because he's always trying to sleep with her, whereas a woman can put aside those feelings and simply be friends with a man. And that is essentially this movie. Can a man say a woman is a tractor without it being a come on? All right, all right. Let's just say, just for the sake of argument, that it was a come on. What do you want me to do about it? I take it back, okay? I take it back. You can't take it back. Why not? Because it's already out there. Oh, geez, what are we supposed to do? Call the cops, it's already out there. Just let it lie, okay? Great, let it lie. That's my policy. That's what I always say. Let it lie. Want to spend the night in a motel? See what I did? I didn't let it lie. Harry. I said I would and then I didn't. Harry. I went the other way. Harry. What? We are just going to be friends, okay? Great, friends. It's the best thing. You realize, of course, that we can never be friends. Why not? What I'm saying is, and this is not a come on in any way, shape, or form is that men and women can't be friends because the sex part always gets in the way. That's not true. I have a number of men friends and there is no sex involved. No, you don't. Yes, I do. No, you don't. Yes, I do. You only think you do. You're saying I'm having sex with these men without my knowledge? No, what I'm saying is they all want to have sex with you. They do not. Do too. They do not. Do too. How do you know? Because no man can be friends with a woman that he finds attractive. He always wants to have sex with her. So you're saying that a man can be friends with a woman he finds unattractive? No, you pretty much want to nail him, too. What if they don't want to have sex with you? Doesn't matter, because the sex thing is already out there, so the friendship is ultimately doomed, and that is the end of the story. Well, I guess we're not going to be friends, then. Guess not. That's too bad. You were the only person that I knew in New York. We get another Louis Armstrong song, Let's Call the Whole Thing Off, at play as they finally get to New York. It's a great song, and I love that Billy Crystal only brought with him two bags and a baseball bat for his trip to New York. It's interesting how when you're young, you think you've got it all figured out and life is planned, but of course, it never is. You either soften or you adapt as time goes by. We fell in love in high school. Yeah, we were, we were high school sweethearts. But then after our junior year, his parents moved away. But I never forgot her. You never forgot me. <laughs> no, her, her face was burned on my brain. And it was 34 years later that I was walking down Broadway and I saw her come out of Toffinetti's. And we both looked at each other and it was just as though not a single day had gone by. She was just as beautiful as she was at 16. He was just the same. He looked exactly the same. All right, so we fast forward five years. It's now 1982, and Meg Ryan has shorter hair, almost kind of like Dorothy Hamill, who was fam the famous Olympic ice skater. And now Billy Crystal has his typical hairstyle as they run into each other at an airport. She, of course, remembers the men and women friends debate. And, of course, they get on an airplane together and sit next to each other. This is a great dialogue between them as they get into how, how she likes to be held after sex. It's just amazing stuff. It's like kind of a precursor to Seinfeld. And what would you like to drink? Nothing, babe. Do you have any Bloody Mary mix? Yes. No, wait. Here's what I want. 
regular tomato juice, fill it up about three quarters, then add a splash of Bloody Mary mix, just a splash, and a little piece of lime, but on the side. The University of Chicago, right? Yes. Did you look this good at the University of Chicago? No. Did we ever... No, no. We drove from Chicago to New York together after graduation. Would you two like to sit together? Yeah. Great, thank you. You were a good friend of, um... Amanda's. I can't believe you can't remember her name. What do you mean? I can remember Amanda, right? Amanda Rice. Reese. Reese, right. That's what I said. Whatever happened to her? I have no idea. You have no idea? You were really good friends with her. We didn't make it because she was such good friends. You went with her. And was it worth it? The sacrifice for a friend that you don't even keep in touch with? Harry, you might not believe this, but I never considered not sleeping with you a sacrifice. Fair enough. You were going to be a gymnast. A journalist. Right, that's what I said. And? I am a journalist. I work at the news. Great. And you're with Joe. Well, that's great. Great. You're together, what, three weeks? A month. How did you know that? You take someone to the airport, it's clearly the beginning of a relationship. That's why I have never taken anyone to the airport at the beginning of a relationship. Why? Because eventually things move on and you don't take someone to the airport and I never wanted anyone to say to me How come you never take me to the airport anymore? It's amazing. You look like a normal person, but actually you are the angel of death. Are you gonna marry him? <laughs> we have only known each other for a month and besides neither one of us is looking to get married right now. Hmm. I'm getting married. You are? Mm-hmm. You are? Yeah. Who is she? Helen Helson, she's a lawyer, she's keeping her name. <laughs> You're getting married. Yeah. <laughs> What's so funny about that? It's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's just so optimistic of you, Harry. Well, you'd be amazed what falling madly in love can do for you. Well, it's wonderful. It's nice to see you embracing life in this manner. Yeah, plus, you know, you just get to a certain point where you get tired of the whole thing. What whole thing? The whole life of a single guy thing meet someone, you have the safe lunch, you decide you like each other enough to move on to dinner. You go dancing, you do the white man's overbite, go back to her place, you have sex, and the minute you're finished, you know what goes through your mind? How long do I have to lie here and hold her before I can get up and go home? Is 30 seconds enough? That's what you're thinking? Is that true? Sure. All men think that. How long do you like to be held afterwards? All night, right? See, that's the problem. Somewhere between 30 seconds and all night is your problem. I don't have a problem. Yeah, you do. And actually, the actor who was making out with Meg at the airport was Gerald Ford's son, Stephen Ford. When they're in the airport, there's a moving walkway, and that was all shot in one shot after the plane lands, and, and they're walking in the terminal. And the walkway scene in the airport was great because, again, it was all one shot. It had to be perfect. And the timing was incredible. It's like an athlete making a great play and making it look easy, but it really isn't. Much like Willie Mays back in the day thing over? Yes. Would you like to have dinner? Just friends. I thought you didn't believe men and women could be friends. When did I say that? On the ride to New York. No, 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 no. I never said that. Yes, that's right. They can't be friends. Unless both of them are involved with other people, then they can. This is an amendment to the earlier rule. If the two people are in relationships, the pressure of possible involvement is lifted. That doesn't work either, because what happens then is the person you're involved with can't understand why you need to be friends with the person you're just friends with. 
like it means something is missing from the relationship and why do you have to go outside to get it? Then when you say, no, 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 it's not true, nothing is missing from the relationship, the person you're involved with then accuses you of being secretly attracted to the person you're just friends with, which you probably are, I mean, come on, who the hell are we kidding, let's face it. Which brings us back to the earlier rule before the amendment, which is men and women can't be friends. So where does that leave us? Harry? Goodbye. Okay. I'll just stop walking. I'll let you go ahead. We were married 40 years ago. We were married three years. We got a divorce. Then I married Marjorie. But first you lived with Barbara. Right, Barbara. But I didn't marry Barbara. I married Marjorie. Then you got a divorce. Right. Then I married Katie. Another divorce. Then a couple of years later at Eddie Colicchio's funeral, I ran into her. I was with some girl I don't even remember. Roberta. Right. Roberta, but I couldn't take my eyes off you. I remember I snuck over to her and I said, what did I say? You said, what are you doing after? Right. So I ditched Roberta, we go for coffee, a month later we're married. 35 years today after our first marriage. So we fast forward another five years. Meg Ryan now has curly, wavy hair. And this introduces Carrie Fisher, who is, again, perfect in this role. And I love how she pulls out her Rolodex, remember those? Of men, who single men. And it's a great scene, because a Rolodex means a certain effort and dedication to organization, as opposed to just letting your phone handle all the work. And eventually, when your phone craps out, good luck retrieving all that data. I don't care what the hell they say about the cloud. His pockets, okay? Marie, why do you go through his pockets? You know what I found? No, what? They just bought a dining room table. He and his wife just went out and spent $1,600 on a dining room table. Where? <laughs> the point isn't where, Alice. The point is he's never going to leave her. So what else is new? You've known this for two years. You're right. You're right. I know you're right. Why can't you find someone single? When I was single, I knew lots of nice single men. There must be someone. Sally found someone. Well, Sally got the last good one. Joe and I broke up. What? When? Monday. You waited three days to you tell Joe's us? Joe's available? Well, for God's sakes, Marie, don't you have any feelings about this? She's obviously upset. I'm not that upset. We've been growing apart for quite a while. But you guys were a couple. You had someone to go places with. You had a date on national holidays. I said to myself, you deserve more than this. You're 31 years old. And the clock is ticking. No, the clock doesn't really start to tick until you're 36. God, you're in such great shape. Well, I've had a few days to get used to it, and uh, I feel okay. Good. Then you're ready. Really, Marie? Well, how else do you think you do it? I've got the perfect guy. I don't happen to find him attractive, but you might. She doesn't have a problem with chins. Marie, I'm not ready yet. But you just said you were over him. I am over him, but I'm in a mourning period. Who is it? Alex Anderson. Oh, you fixed me up with him six years ago. <laughs> Sorry. God. All right, wait, here. Here we go. Ken Darman. He's been married for over a year. Really? Married. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Look, I got one. There is no point in my going out with someone I might really like if I met him at the right time, but who right now has no chance of being anything to me but a transitional man. Okay. But don't wait too long. Remember what happened with David Warsaw? His wife left him and everyone said, give him some time, don't move in too fast. Six months later, he was dead. 
What are you saying? I should get married to someone right away in case he's about to die? At least you could say you were married. I'm saying that the right man for you might be out there right now, and if you don't grab him, someone else will, and you'll have to spend the rest of your life knowing that someone else is married to your husband. So then we cut to Billy Crystal and Bruno Kirby at a New York Giants football game. And Phil Simms throws a touchdown pass to Mark Bavaro. The football game scene uses footage from an actual New York Giants game against the Detroit Lions, which happened to be October 16, 1988. The Giants won 30-10. Phil Simms threw for 320 yards and two touchdowns, while Bavaro had eight catches for 80 yards and one touchdown. That would have been a good fantasy football day. So it's interesting, so the long-range crowd shots are actually at a Buffalo Bills home game, which is at Rich Stadium, but that's also near New York. So for all you football nerds out there, and I definitely was a football nerd back in the 1980s, because my beloved San Francisco 49ers were amazing, and they actually won the Super Bowl for the 1988 season against the Cincinnati Bengals. But in that season, in Week 2, the 49ers actually beat the Giants in New York on a last-minute 78-yard pass from Joe Montana to Jerry Rice. And I remember watching this game, and specifically this play, because Montana didn't actually play the first half because he had a sore elbow. He then replaced Steve Young, who started the game, uh, Montana came in the second half and, of course, worked his magic as he always seemed to do. And Montana threw a perfect ball down the sideline to Rice as the two giant defenders crashed into one another, allowing Rice to easily score. Before the ball was snapped, he would like to get in the shotgun. Montana, Rice, he's open. No flags are down. Touchdown. we get back to the movie and like Carrie Fisher Bruno Kirby was one of the best character actors it's really sad that they're no longer with us any longer but that's the wonderful thing about movies they live on forever and it's funny again they're doing the wave at Giant Stadium it's an LA thing but the original bit came from Crystal when he was at Dodger Stadium and this makes total sense When did this happen? Friday. Helen comes home from work and she says, I don't know if I want to be married anymore. Like it's the institution. You know, like it's nothing personal, just something she's been thinking about in a casual way. I'm calm. I say, why don't we take some time to think about it? You know, don't rush into anything. Yeah, right. Next day, she says she's thought about it. And she wants a trial separation. She just wants to try it, she says. But we can still date. Like this is supposed to cushion the blow. I mean, I got married so I could stop dating. So I don't see where we can still date as any big incentive since the last thing you want to do is date your wife who's supposed to love you. Which is what I'm saying to her when it occurs to me that maybe she doesn't. So I say to her, don't you love me anymore? You know what she says? I don't know if I've ever loved you. Ooh, that's harsh. You don't bounce back from that right away. Thanks, Jess. No, I'm a writer. I know dialogue. 
And that's particularly harsh. Then she tells me that somebody in her office is going to South America and she can sublet his apartment. I can't believe this. And the doorbell rings. I can sublet his apartment. The words are still hanging in the air, you know, like in a balloon attached to a mouth. Like with a it. cartoon. Right. So I go to the door and there are moving men there. Now I start to get suspicious. I say, Helen, when did you call these movers? And she doesn't say anything. So I ask the movers, when did this woman book you for this gig? And they're just standing there, three huge guys, one of them wearing a T-shirt that says, don't fuck with Mr. Zero. So I said, Helen, when did you make this arrangement? She says, a week ago. I said, you've known for a week and you didn't tell me? And she says, I didn't want to ruin your birthday. You're saying Mr. Zero knew you were getting a divorce a week before you did? Mr. Zero, no. I can't believe this. I haven't told you the bad part yet. What could be worse than Mr. Zero, though? It's all a lie. She's in love with somebody else, some tax attorney. She moved in with him. How did you find out? I followed her. I stood outside the building. So humiliating. Tell me about it. And you know I knew? I knew the whole time that even though we were happy, it was just an illusion, and that one day she would kick the shit out of me. Marriages don't break up on account of infidelity. It's just a symptom that something else is wrong. Really? Well, that symptom is fucking my wife. Meg and Billy run into each other at a bookstore, and eventually she'll own one and You've Got Mail. Shakespeare and Company was the bookstore that is in this film. Frischer has a great line to Ryan saying, Someone is staring at you in personal growth. We were both born in the same in hospital. 1921. Seven days apart. In the same hospital. We both grew up we one block away from each other. On the Lower East Side. On Delancey Street. My family moved to the Bronx he when I was 10. lived on Fordham Road. Hers moved when she was I 11. I lived on 183rd Street. For six years, she worked on the 15th floor. I worked for floor a very prominent as a neurologist. Nurse, where Dr. I had a practice on the 14th floor, the very same we building. We never met. Never met. Can you imagine that? You know where we met? In an elevator. I was visiting family. In the Ambassador Hotel in Chicago, He was Illinois. on the third floor. I was on the 12th. I rode up nine extra floors just to keep talking to her. Nine extra floors. You know, funny enough about coincidences and never meeting, it's kind of like my parents. You know, they they both had the same ears, nose, and throat doctor. Their parents actually played against each other in football, um, and, and but they never met, and... Uh, Finally, they were they were set up on a blind date, and uh, it's just funny how you could have all these things connect, but sometimes it just meets by fate. You just never know. Harry is the type of character that always reads the last page of every book because he might die and never know the ending. <laughs> At the time, he's reading Stephen King's Misery, which is funny because Rob Reiner ended up directing the movie version as his next film. There's a great scene where Sally checks every letter to make sure it has a stamp and return address before mailing <laughs> into the mailbox. Then we get the scene where they're watching the movie together on the phone, which is Casablanca, and they talk about high maintenance, but you think you are low maintenance. And then I'm looking at this, I'm it's crazy to remember how small TVs were back then, but nobody cared, which is why I think nobody goes to the movies anymore. You can have an 80-inch screen at your house, and strangers aren't coughing on you. Now, it's so funny because Nora made Rob Reiner watch Indiscreet and Pillow Talk because of the split screen. So that's where that came from. Ooh, Ingrid Bergman. Now she's low maintenance. Low maintenance? There are two kinds of women. High maintenance and low maintenance. 
And Ingrid Bergman is low maintenance? And LM, definitely. Which one am I? You're the worst kind. You're high maintenance, but you think you're low maintenance. I don't see that. You don't see that? Waiter, I'll begin with a house salad, but I don't want the regular dressing. I'll have the balsamic vinegar and oil, but on the side. And then the salmon with the mustard sauce, but I want the mustard sauce on the side. On the side is a very big thing for you. Well, I just want it the way I want it. I know. High maintenance. There's a beautiful scene in Central Park where Harry and Sally talk about their dreams, which is always fun to do because your dreams are always random. Mine always involve whoever I saw that day and again the movie the look of this movie is beautiful it's new york in fall and it just looks terrific and the central park scene is just perfect because you see all the leaves on the ground next you get this really cute scene with them talking in funny voices and and it's funny how when you start to become friends with someone um each they kind of get jealous about them dating others and there's great subtleties about how they look at each other and when you when you start to fall in love with someone you start to get silly with them because you're comfortable it's great you kind of go on the ride with them i have decided that for the rest of the day we are going to talk like this like this no please to repeat after me pepper 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 Pepper. waiter there is too much pepper on my paprikash. <laughs> Waiter, there, there is, is too, too much, much pepper, pepper on my paprikash. On my paprikash. But I would be proud to partake of your pecan pie. <laughs> oh, no. But I would but, be proud. But I would be proud. To partake. To partake. Of your pecan pie. Of your pecan pie. Pecan pie. Pecan pie. Pecan pie. <laughs> would you like to go to the movies with me tonight? Would you like to go? Wait, wait. Not to repeat, please, to answer. Would you like to go to the movies with me tonight? Oh. Oh. Well, I'd love to, Harry, but I I can't. Why do you have a hot date? Well, yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah, I I was going to tell you about it, but I don't know. I just... I felt strange about it. Why? Well, because we've been spending so much time together. Oh, I think it's great that you have a date. You do? Yeah. Next is one of my favorite scenes, especially after I found out how it was filmed, and that's the batting cage scene. There, uh, There's no helmets. They're, they're swinging wood bats instead of metal bats, and Crystal definitely has a better swing than Kirby. And the crazy part about this is Crystal's swinging left-handed, but he's a right-handed hitter. Reiner couldn't get the camera angle he wanted without Crystal batting left-handed, and Crystal did it no problem. You actually think he's a left-handed hitter. That's how he's an athlete. So if you're not a baseball fan or have ever swung a bat, this is not an easy feat to look natural swinging uh, with your other hand. And and you look good doing it. So go watch uh, Anthony Perkins and Fear Fear Strikes Out, and you'll see when someone's not really an athlete, oh boy, (laughs) it's bad. And uh, it's also funny seeing Bruno Kirby wearing shorts over his sweatpants. Then we cut to one of the most iconic scenes ever in film, and that is the restaurant orgasm scene. Everything about the scene is perfect, with the punchline, of course, stealing the show, which, of course, was by Rob Reiner's mom, Estelle. Crystal came up with the line, which is just brilliant, which is, I'll have what she's having. Nora Ephron actually came up with the concept of faking orgasms because she was asked to tell the, tell the guys that they don't really know about women, and this is what she came up with. Meg Ryan actually suggested they film it in a restaurant setting, so it was really an ensemble thing. However, when it came time to actually do the scene, she was getting nervous about filming that scene. And and at first try, she was just too mild. Then Reiner kind of gave her directions and overplayed it, all while his mama is on the set. So, 
this is filmed at Katz's Deli, and and people now act the scene where Ryan was sitting at, and uh, no feature film would talk about orgasms like this, and and the entire test audience went crazy. And both Reiner and Crystal knew it would be a hit. And what, so it's great when you go to Katz's Deli, they kind of have like an arrow pointing, you know, this is where Meg Ryan sat. <laughs> so people like to reenact that. Just what you want when you're ordering a sandwich. Nora Ephron has a great uh, story about air- airplanes at the time wouldn't show the orgasm scene when they would show it in, in the film. And, and this is what really gave the movie an R rating. And all the women were laughing hysterically and the men were completely silent during the first screening. Because... <laughs> Men fake listening, women fake orgasms. That's a great line from Nora Ephron. You know, I'm so glad I never got involved with you. I just would have ended up being some woman you had to get up out of bed and leave at 3 o'clock in the morning and go clean your andirons. And you don't even have a fireplace. Not that I would know this. Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. Hey, I don't feel great about this, but I don't hear anyone complaining. Of course not. You're out the door too fast. I think they have an okay time. How do you know? I mean, how do I know I know? Because they... Yes, because they... How do you know that they're really... What are you saying? That they fake orgasm? It's possible. Get out of here. Why? Most women at one time or another have faked it. Well, they haven't faked it with me. How do you know? Because I know. Oh, right. That's right. I forgot. You're a man. What was that supposed to mean? Nothing. It's just that all men are sure it never happened to them, and most women at one time or another have done it, so you do the math. You don't think that I could tell a difference? No. Get out of here. Oh. Oh. what she's having and then billy crystal tells a story about when they had a viewing for the united kingdom royal family which included princess diana and so all ryan can think about is when the scene is going to finally come (laughs) and so diana whispers in, in crystal's ear as the lights go down that she just took her shoes off so crystal replies that he just took his pants off and she cracked up so when the fine, finally when the orgasm scene arrived, Diana starts laughing like Eddie Murphy, says Crystal. And, and Crystal later said if this was a real date, he would never see her again. <laughs> 
Princess Diana told Crystal later that she would have reacted, uh, she would have laughed more at the scene, but she knew she was being watched by the audience, and so she kind of had to tone it down. Well, he was a head counselor at the boys' camp, and I was a head counselor at the girls' camp. And they had a social one night, and he walked across the room. I thought he was coming to talk to my friend Maxine, because people were always crossing rooms to talk to Maxine. But he was coming to talk to me, and he said, I'm Ben Small of the Coney Island Smalls. At that moment, I knew. I knew the way you know about a good melon. And this was actually Nora Ephron's parents' story. Then we get the famous or the infamous double date with Carrie Fisher and Bruno Kirby trying to set Harry and Sally up with one another and the other the other couple. And then they, of course, end up with each other because they have more in common. And the, this was filmed at the Cafe Luxembourg, which is a famous French restaurant on West 70th Street. It's like whenever I, I meet Jimmy Breslin, it's as if he's leaving some kind of a, a wake-up call for the city of New York, you know? What do you mean by a, a wake-up call? Oh, well, he's, he's saying we've actually got people in the city. Like, mm-hmm. well, would, I, like, would I have seen any of, the, any of your windows? Just, 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 a couple of weeks ago, I did a, I did a thing with a hostage. Well, it's it's not the people in blindfolds. Yeah. It's, well, I, don't, I thought it was like late 80s. Uh-huh. It's macho. Mm. I don't think it's interesting. Let's just say I'm really just not a big fan of Jimmy Breslin. Well, he's the reason I became a writer, but that's not important. You and Marie are both from New Jersey. Really? Where are you from? South Orange. Haddonfield. Oh. So, what are we going to order? Well, I'm going to start with the grilled radicchio. Jazz, Sally is a great order. Not only does she always pick the best thing on the menu, but she orders it in a way that even the, the chef didn't know how good it could be. I think restaurants have become too important. Oh, I agree. Restaurants are to people in the 80s what theater was to people in the 60s. I read that in a magazine. I wrote that. Get out of here. <laughs> no, I did. I wrote that. I've never quoted anything from a magazine in my life. That's amazing. Don't you think that's amazing? And you wrote it? I also wrote Pastos the Quiche of the 80s. Get over yourself. I did. Where did I read that? New York Magazine. Sally writes for New York Magazine. You know, that piece had a real impact on me. I mean, I, I don't know that much about writing, but... Look, it spoke to you, and that pleases me. I, I mean, I really ha- You have to admire people who, who can be as, that articulate. Nobody has ever quoted me back to me before. A man came to me and said, I found a nice girl for you. She lives in the next village, and she is ready for marriage. We were not supposed to meet until the wedding. But I wanted to make sure. So I sneaked into her village, hid behind a tree, watched her washing the clothes. I think if I don't like the way she looks, I don't marry her. But she looked really nice to me. So I said, okay, to the man, we get married. We married for 55 years. 
Then we see Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan at the Sharper Image. And it was a store that you would always window shop, but you never bought anything because it was too expensive. It was always fun to look at. And you saw an early version of the karaoke machine. You could barely read the lyrics, <laughs> and they had a tape machine. We get another fun scene where they're picking out what furniture to keep when Carrie Fisher and Bruno Kirby are deciding to move in with one another. And there's a great line from Carrie Fisher that she never wants that wagon wheel coffee table after Billy Crystal kind of loses it. And Fisher gives a great line written by Efron. Everyone thinks they have good taste and a good sense of humor. Then we get to the party scene where they're all playing win, lose, or draw. And Baby Fishmouth, that's all improv. This a terrific scene. It's a monkey. It's a monkey. A monkey see monkey do. It's, a, it's an ape. Going ape. It's a baby. Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes. She just said it's a baby. How about Planet of the Dopes? It doesn't look like a baby. With a big mouth. mouth big, baby uh, Mick Jagger is a baby. Mm. Baby ape. Baby ape. Stop with the apes, would you uh, please? Baby's breath. B- baby. Ba- Rosemary's baby, baby's baby, mouth. Baby. Won't you come ba- home, Bill? Baby. Ba- baby, baby kiss baby, the baby. Melancholy baby's mouth. Baby fish mouth. Baby fish mouth. Fifteen seconds. A big uh, baby. B- mouth. B- baby boom. Baby. Draw something resembling anything. Baby, baby. Uh, crying baby. Kiss ba- the baby. Uh, baby spitting up. Exorcist baby. Die. Baby. baby. Yes, sir. That's my baby. No, sir. Don't mean maybe. That's it. Time's up. Baby talk. Baby talk. What, what's that? That's not a saying. Oh, but baby fish mouth is sweeping the nation. <laughs> I hear him talking. <laughs> Final score. Our team one ten. You guys sixty. Ouch, fix. Definitely a fix. I can't draw. No, that's baby, and it's clearly talking. Never looked like a baby to me. Which part? All of it. We see, again, Billy Crystal reading the last page of a book. This time it's Robert Ludlum's Icarious Legend. Meg Ryan now has super curly hair, and Crystal is trying to cheer Ryan up after the guy she was with is uh, broken up from her and tells her he's getting married. They drinking Avion water. This is kind of a precursor to when everyone now has bottled water, but back then it was kind of a novelty. And all of her videotapes were alphabetized and on index cards. And my mom did the same thing with our VHS tapes. How else are you going to find them? So it actually took 30 takes of that cry scene that is just full of comedy. And you can kind of feel the audience saying, don't do it. Don't, don't sleep with her because it's going to ruin the relationship. And it's funny because Billy Crystal, you can see after they're done, has like one foot on the floor, which is like he's almost out the door. So it's like he knew they made a mistake. Even at the moment, you don't feel that. <laughs> I love the phone scene with Bruno Kirby and Fisher where they're lying in bed, and but they have separate phones. And today it would be all te- texting on the cell phone, which would not be as good. And, and the rhythm of the scene is perfect. There were no cuts. It's just brilliant. The timing's excellent. And they rigged up a system where they could all hear each other and was all done live. However, it took 61 takes. It was an all-day shoot just to get this right. Yours... Hello. I'm sorry to call so early. Are you all right? No one I know would call at this hour. I did something terrible. What did you do? No one I know would call at this hour. It's so awful. I need to talk. What happened? What's the matter? Harry came over last night. I went over to Sally's last night. Because I was upset that Joe was getting married. one thing led to another. And before I knew it, we were kissing, and To make a long story short, we we did did it. it. They did it. That's great, Sally. We've been praying for her. We should have done it in the first place. For months we've been saying you should do it. You guys belong together. It's like killing two birds with one stone. It's like two wrongs make a right. 
How that was it? The during part was good. I thought it was good. But then I felt suffocated. Then I guess it wasn't. Jesus, I'm sorry. No worries. I had to get out of there. He just disappeared. I feel so bad. I'm so embarrassed. I don't blame you. That's horrible. I think I'm coming down with something. I think I'm catching a cold. Look, look, it would have been great if it worked out, but it didn't. Mm. I should never go to bed with anyone when you found out your last boyfriend is getting married. Who's that talking? Who? Is that Jess on the phone? It's Jane Fonda on the VCR. It's Brian Gumbel. You, you want to come, come over for breakfast? breakfast? No, I'm not up to it. No, I feel too awful. Good. good. I mean, it's so early. But call me later if you want. I'll call you later, okay? Okay, bye. 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 God. I know. Tell me I'll never have to be out there again. You will never have to be out there again. Then we see a huge fashion faux pas as both Bruno Kirby and Crystal are walking fast wearing yoga pants. Just a bad, bad look for men. <laughs> I love that this is 1989, so you get old school answering machines with tapes. Billy Crystal is depressed on New Year's Eve, so he's watching Dick Clark's New Year's Rocking Eve, and he's eating his favorite cookie of all time, Malamar cookies, which, if you didn't know, is a combination of a graham cracker and marshmallow dipped in chocolate. Finally, on New Year's Eve, when Harry had to see Sally, It Had to Be You, was playing by Frank Sinatra, because, again, this music is timeless. The final Billy speech is just perfect, and it was actually written towards the end in the last song, Old Acquaintances bit, you know? It's really funny, because you know they will be happy together, because they make each other laugh. Humor is important. And then we get the final old person scene, but it's not really an old person scene, because it's Harry and Sally, and this, again, was all improv as well. Well, how does it work? I don't know, but not this way. How about this way? I love that you get cold when it's 71 degrees out. I love that it takes you an hour and a half to order a sandwich. I love that you get a little crinkle above your nose when you're looking at me like I'm nuts. I love that after I spend a day with you, I can still smell your perfume on my clothes. And I love that you are the last person I want to talk to before I go to sleep at night. And it's not because I'm lonely, and it's not because it's New Year's Eve. I came here tonight because when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. You see? That is just like you, Harry. You say things like that and you make it impossible for me to hate you. And I hate you, Harry. I really hate you. What does this song mean? My whole life, I don't know what this song means. I mean, should old acquaintance be forgot? Does that mean that we should forget old acquaintances? It doesn't mean that if we happen to forget them, we should remember them, which is not possible because we already forgot them. Well, maybe it just means that we should remember that we forgot them or something. <laughs> anyway, it's about old friends. first time we met, we hated each other. No, you didn't hate me. I hated you. The second time we met, you didn't even remember me. I did, too. I remembered you. The third time we met, we became friends. We were friends for a long time. And then we weren't. And then we fell in love. Three months later, we got married. It only took three months. Twelve years and three months. 
We had this really, really wonderful wedding. It was, it really was a it was beautiful great. wedding. We had this enormous uh, coconut cake. A huge coconut cake with the, with the tears, and there was this, this very rich chocolate sauce on the side. Right, because not everybody likes it on the cake because it makes it very soggy. It's particularly the coconut soaks up a lot of that stuff, so you really, it's important to keep it on the side. All right. Harry Connick Jr. does the score on a lot of these American standards, and he was only 20 years old at the time. All right, there were deleted scenes, so let's get into a few of them. Uh, Early in the film when they're driving, uh, Harry puts grapes in his cheek and uh, does a Don Corleone impersonation, and Sally isn't impressed. Their first dinner at the cafe, Harry asks how many men Sally has slept with. Sally is indignant, then says two. Harry says... He doesn't know how many he slept with. They go back and forth between 10 and 100. He finally says 10. Next is Sally's apartment with another friend. It's a redhead that's not Carrie Fisher and her daughter. Sally is talking about a bad date. The guy collects air in a mason jar for important events. The friend, say, the friend says that they like Harry. Why doesn't she get involved with him? Sally, because, Sally says because they're just friends. He's a mess, but a nice mess. There's a scene where Harry is wide awake at 4 a.m. after they sleep together. The clock is flashing on his face, and Sally, on the other hand, is peacefully sleeping. There's a shopping scene where Harry and Bruno Kirby are discussing how Sally doesn't want anything to do with him after after they sleep together. There's an outtake of the final scene on the couch where Harry talks about his family, and it's a cute back and forth. Aunt Minnie is like a blowfish, and they talk about their honeymoon. He, he told uh, to pack three different bags. He picked one, and that's where they went when it comes to their honeymoon. All right, there were some fun facts like the actresses who were considered for Sally. They include Susan Day, Elizabeth Perkins, Elizabeth McGovern, and Molly Ringwald. I'm very glad they picked Meg Ryan. For Harry, this is even more interesting, Tom Hanks actually turned down the role because he thought the film was, quote, too lightweight. Interesting. Albert Brooks also turned down the role. Michael Keaton, Bill Murray, Jeff Bridges, and Harrison Ford were all also also considered. I think of all of them, I think only Albert Brooks would have made the most, well, of course, Tom Hanks, but uh, I think for the comedic chops, Albert Brooks would have been natural. But, you know, again, the way Harry and Sally... Meg Ryan and and Billy Crystal took on those roles. It just wouldn't have been the same. All right. If you haven't seen this movie and you're now, you know, at that age where you can look back and appreciate dialogue and romantic comedies, I think this is by far one of the best movies ever made, especially in the romantic comedy genre. So until next week, this is Brian signing off. Hey, this is Brian Davis, and you might know me from the Damn Good Movie Memories podcast. And now, get ready for the Bad Beat Show on ThatMetalStation.com from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern every Wednesday night. I'm going to play some kick-ass hard rock inspired by the blues, because after all, the foundation of all things rock and metal is, of course, the blues. So join me every Wednesday night for the Bad Beat, because even when you lose, you still win. We are officially on Spotify now, so if you don't use iTunes, if you don't use the Podbean app, you can go to Spotify and get all of our past episodes. You can stream it on there, so if you're a Spotify user, you can go find Damn Good Movie Memories. <laughs> I can't even say my own podcast. Damn Good Movie Memories. Yes, I know what I'm talking about. I'm the host, right? Okay, so go to Spotify, look for Damn Good Movie Memories. You can stream all of that stuff. And yeah, so if you don't want to use iTunes, you don't want to use Podbean, you can use Spotify as well. All right, before we sign off, we do have t-shirts are available for sale. All you have to do is go to TeePublic, that's T-E-E, 
P-U-B-L-I-C.com, and you can get your very own Damn Good Movie Memories t-shirt. You can get all sizes, any gender, you can get whatever you want just at the tip of your fingers. So just go to tpublic.com, look up Damn Good Movie Memories, and you can get your very own t-shirt. If you enjoy this podcast and are an iTunes user, please do the show a favor and head on over to the official iTunes page for Damn Good Movie Memories. Be sure to leave a rating and a review. This will allow the show to appear higher in the algorithm and spread the joy of this podcast to the masses. If you are not an iTunes user, you can still listen and subscribe on Podbean at damngoodmoviememories.podbean.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook under our Damn Good Movie Memories page. You can also listen to a limited number of episodes on YouTube. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and be sure to tune in next week for an all new episode of Damn Good Movie Memories. I am Dr. Fuck. And I'm the actual alcoholic. And we are part of the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. We are the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. That's right. The way you can check us out is we are on iTunes and also Podbean. And we forgot a review recently. I got this review right here. It says right here, it says, Rock and Metal Combat Podcast is the greatest podcast in the world. And it's my number one podcast signed by Science. Now, and then Science also says... Science! Science also said... My second favorite podcast is It Doesn't Matter, The Rest Suck. Rock and Metal Combat Podcast on iTunes and Poppy. Check it out. Science!